Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this topic matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Greetings and salutations. Dr. Casey Grover back again for another episode of Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care. To start us off, I have one error to correct from episode 12 on the topic of medications for alcohol use disorder. I described the mechanism of disulfiram in episode 12 as blocking the enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase. It turns out that disulfiram actually inhibits the enzyme aldehyde dehydrogenase. Alcohol is metabolized to acetaldehyde by alcohol dehydrogenase. Aldehyde dehydrogenase then breaks down acetaldehyde to acetic acid. Blocking alcohol dehydrogenase would prevent any breakdown of alcohol. Blocking aldehyde dehydrogenase would prevent breakdown of acetaldehyde. So, to increase the amount of acetaldehyde after drinking, disulfiram works by blocking aldehyde dehydrogenase. My apologies for the error. Now, it actually worked out okay as this episode will be on the topic of alcoholic ketoacidosis. And this brief review of alcohol metabolism will be a good refresher to get us ready for the information in this episode. With so many great topics to cover, you may be wondering why I chose alcoholic ketoacidosis, also known as AKA. We've had an increase in presentations to my emergency department for problems related to alcohol, and I have had several patients with alcoholic ketoacidosis that I have taken care of in the last few weeks. As substance use, including alcohol use, is on the rise nationally, I am clearly not the only one seeing more cases of alcoholic ketoacidosis. Now, the last time I got any education on alcoholic ketoacidosis was in residency, and the education was pretty terse. I don't think I was given any more education than give IV fluids. So, with all of that backstory, let's dive into a little refresher on alcoholic ketoacidosis. Keeping with the goal of this podcast to be evidence-based, I tried to find a recent paper in the literature on the topic, and there really wasn't much. The best and most recent article I could find was from 2006 in the Emergency Medicine Journal. It was titled, Alcoholic Ketoacidosis, and the lead author was L.C. McGuire. It was written as a review article on the topic, and basically the authors did a review of the medical literature on alcoholic ketoacidosis from 1966 to 2004 to find and include all pertinent articles on the topic. The article begins with some basic terminology and a brief history of the condition. Alcoholic ketoacidosis may also be called alcoholic ketosis or alcoholic acidosis. The condition was first described in 1940 in a case series of nine patients with severe ketoacidosis who did not have diabetes but who did have prolonged excessive consumption of alcohol. Three additional similar cases were reported in 1970, and the condition was given the name alcoholic ketoacidosis. Over time, more cases began popping up in the literature, and medical providers began learning more about the condition. 
Clinicians noted that patients with alcoholic ketoacidosis demonstrated tachypnea and tachycardia and could also be hypotensive. Furthermore, additional reports of this condition noted epigastric pain, nausea, and vomiting. Laboratory studies showed anion gap acidosis with normal or low glucose levels. There was even some evidence that patients who had died from alcohol use had alcoholic ketoacidosis and hypoglycemia as the cause of death. The article moves on to discuss the pathophysiology of alcoholic ketoacidosis. I'll do my best to keep it simple and pertinent as it's very easy to get lost in all of the details and biochemistry. First, we need to recall how alcohol is metabolized. And to clarify, we are talking about ethanol specifically when we use the word alcohol. Alcohol is metabolized in the liver to acetaldehyde through oxidization. There are three major pathways of oxidization, cytosolic alcohol dehydrogenase, microsomal ethanol oxidization, and peroxisomal catalase. If you're worried, I didn't know any of this either. It turns out that alcohol dehydrogenase is the main pathway for alcohol metabolism, and we are now well acquainted with this pathway after I corrected my error from episode 12 at the beginning of this episode. The alcohol dehydrogenase pathway ultimately breaks down alcohol to acetic acid, which is further modified to acetyl coenzyme A. As a side effect of this metabolic pathway, mitochondrial metabolism in the liver is disrupted. Chronic heavy users of alcohol have depleted protein and carbohydrate stores. While alcohol does provide some calories, other sources of dietary intake may be chronically reduced as people drink more and eat less. This results in a starvation state and decreased stores of glycogen in the liver. When alcohol continues to be consumed in this state, the disrupted mitochondrial metabolism impairs hepatic gluconeogenesis. Free fatty acids are released from adipose tissue to help provide an energy source. Low glucose levels from impaired gluconeogenesis and increased fatty acid levels push the body towards ketogenesis and acidosis. Furthermore, there is also some increase in the production of lactic acid during this unique biochemical and endocrine state of alcoholic ketoacidosis. However, severe lactic acidosis does not occur in alcoholic ketoacidosis unless there is underlying severe thiamine deficiency or significantly impaired liver function. Okay, that was way too much biochemistry, but it does help us to understand the underlying metabolic derangements in patients with chronic alcohol use that predispose them to this condition and how continued consumption of alcohol and alcohol metabolism causes the development of acidosis and ketosis. On to clinical presentation. The article pivots to the clinical and laboratory diagnosis of alcoholic ketoacidosis. We'll start with symptoms. The classic presentation for alcoholic ketoacidosis is a patient with an alcohol use disorder with abdominal pain and intractable vomiting after a period of heavy alcohol intake with minimal food intake. It's important to note here that the symptoms of alcoholic ketoacidosis are very similar to that of other conditions related to alcohol like alcoholic gastritis and pancreatitis. Patients with alcoholic ketoacidosis may have had similar episodes of these symptoms in the past. 
In terms of the physical exam, patients with alcoholic ketoacidosis should not have any confusion or encephalopathy outside of any intoxication from alcohol. Patients will likely be tachypnic from the acidosis and will also likely be tachycardic. Depending on the blood alcohol concentration, a patient with AKA may be starting to show signs of alcohol withdrawal, as abdominal pain and vomiting can be significant enough that the patient cannot continue to drink. The abdominal exam may show some generalized tenderness, but focal abdominal tenderness or peritoneal signs are not seen with alcoholic ketoacidosis. On to laboratory studies. As many alcohol-related illnesses can cause abdominal pain and vomiting, laboratory studies are essential here to confirm the diagnosis of AKA and exclude other diagnoses such as pancreatitis. Patients with alcoholic ketoacidosis will have an elevated anion gap and acidosis. Blood glucose will be normal or low. BUN and creatinine may be mildly elevated. Lactic acid may be moderately elevated. Unfortunately, this article does not give any reference numbers. And severe lactic acidosis is not a common presentation, except as we mentioned before, in the case of thiamine deficiency or severe underlying liver disease. Blood alcohol level may be elevated or undetectable. And finally, serum and urine ketones will be elevated. And of course, you'll also be getting other labs like liver function tests, a complete blood count, and lipase to make sure that the abdominal pain and vomiting aren't from something else like a bleeding gastric ulcer, alcoholic hepatitis, or pancreatitis. Now, in terms of the complications of alcoholic ketoacidosis, what do we need to worry about? Given the fluid losses from the diuretic effect of alcohol along with vomiting, patients will be dehydrated. In severe cases, patients with AKA may develop an acute kidney injury or even present with hypovolemic shock. Furthermore, vomiting can cause electrolyte disturbances, most prominently hypokalemia. Given the underlying metabolic disturbances that we went over in our discussion of the pathophysiology, patients have minimal hepatic glycogen stores and gluconeogenesis is impaired, so patients can have significant hypoglycemia. And lastly, severe cases of alcoholic ketoacidosis may demonstrate severe acidosis with a depressed pH. So, now that you've made the diagnosis of alcoholic ketoacidosis and ruled out other conditions, what do you do with the patient in front of you? First, we need to start with fluid resuscitation and correction of metabolic derangements. Given the underlying pathophysiology of this condition, glucose-containing fluids are ideal here for treatment. Additionally, some studies on AKA have shown that resuscitation with normal saline alone can actually worsen the acidosis. The authors in this article therefore recommend treatment with a 5% dextrose-containing IV fluid along with a crystalloid to provide volume. Any electrolyte disturbance should be corrected, such as providing potassium repletion for hypokalemia, and given the poor underlying nutritional state in patients with AKA, magnesium and phosphate levels should be checked when the diagnosis of AKA is made and repletion should be given in cases of hypomagnesemia and hypophosphatemia. Along this same line, patients with AKA are likely to be deficient in thiamine, 
so a dose of intravenous thiamine should be given. An empiric dose of 100 mg IV once is a good starting point in the absence of clinical evidence of thiamine deficiency. And of course, these patients need treatment for their alcohol use disorder. But let's put that on hold for a bit. What do we do with these patients once we've made the diagnosis of alcoholic ketoacidosis in the emergency department or acute care setting? Do we need to admit them? The article actually doesn't directly address this, but it does point out that acidosis from alcoholic ketoacidosis does resolve relatively quickly with appropriate treatment. The mean time to resolution of acidosis in AKA when appropriate treatment is given is five to seven hours. So AKA, in the absence of another condition or complicating factor, most likely does not need admission and can be managed in the emergency department or observation setting with appropriate treatment and serial labs to monitor for resolution of acidosis. But patients with AKA who have another complicating factor such as acute kidney injury, significant electrolyte disturbances, Wernicke's encephalopathy, or severe alcohol withdrawal will definitely need to be admitted. So it's really your clinical judgment as an ED or acute care provider looking at the patient as a whole to determine if your patient with alcoholic ketoacidosis needs to be admitted or not. Now, let's come back to the issue of treatment for the underlying alcohol use disorder. Not every patient with alcohol use disorder develops AKA. It takes chronic, heavy alcohol use with poor nutrition to develop alcoholic ketoacidosis. And in my mind, these patients have very severe alcohol use disorders and are high risk to develop severe withdrawal. If you have the option to admit these patients for medical detoxification, that's a good option. If you don't have the option to admit these patients for medical detoxification, then monitoring for and treating alcohol withdrawal in the emergency department or observation setting while treating the alcoholic ketoacidosis is a good option. If you end up sending the patient home from the emergency department, consider prescribing medications to manage withdrawal such as gabapentin and or diazepam. And finally, we also want to think about the types of patients who drink heavily and don't eat much. And I think of patients who live alone or live with a significant other who is also a heavy consumer of alcohol. So when we think about a disposition for these patients, just sending them back directly to their home environment will likely result in a return to drinking. If you can connect patients with a residential drug and alcohol treatment program, that would be a great option. If you can even connect patients to local support services such as Alcoholics Anonymous or a mutual support group, that would also be great. If you can connect patients to outpatient substance use treatment programs, that would be great too. If possible, have your patient see social work or an ED substance use navigator while they are under your care so that you can come up with a solid treatment plan for the patient after discharge so they don't immediately go back to drinking alcohol. That's the end of the article. So let's finish up this episode with some take-home points. Number one, alcoholic ketoacidosis is a unique metabolic and endocrine state that develops in patients with chronic and heavy alcohol use with poor nutrition. Number two, presenting symptoms and signs of alcoholic ketoacidosis or heavy alcohol use, abdominal pain, vomiting, tachypnea, and tachycardia. The abdominal examination should not demonstrate focal tenderness or peritoneal signs. Number three, 
laboratory studies are critical to rule in alcoholic ketoacidosis and to rule out other conditions. Patients with AKA will have an elevated anion gap and acidosis with a normal or low glucose level. Number four, we need to monitor for the potential complications of alcoholic ketoacidosis, including electrolyte disturbances and hypovolemia. Number five, treatment of alcoholic ketoacidosis involves aggressive resuscitation with glucose-containing IV fluids and crystalloid, along with electrolyte repletion as needed. And don't forget to give a dose of thiamine. Number six, Patients with isolated alcoholic ketoacidosis may be managed in an emergency department or observation setting, but patients who have other medical issues from the alcoholic ketoacidosis, such as severe electrolyte disturbances or other medical issues from chronic alcohol use, such as severe alcohol withdrawal, may require admission. And number seven. Patients who develop alcoholic ketoacidosis have severe underlying alcohol use disorders and need treatment for their alcohol use disorder. Work with social work and ED substance use navigators along with your local chemical dependency treatment programs and providers to come up with a plan for treatment. Be sure to monitor for and treat alcohol withdrawal. That's the end of this episode. I know that I personally will be doing a better job of treating alcoholic ketoacidosis on my next shift, so I hope this episode was as helpful for you as it was for me. Thank you for what you do, and don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.